Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Buery, and as always, I'm joined with someone who sold her home to avoid the threat of mudslides, Dr. Lucy Jones. Thanks to all the sponsors who stepped up to support this podcast, You Can Too, which also provides support for Dr. Jones's nonprofit, Center for Science and Society. Please go to patreon.com and be a sponsor too. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. So now, let's get to it. As we talk about wildfires, people know about the direct impact of the raging fire that burns through wildlands and communities. The greater community feels the impact of the smoke. Sometimes it can even be seen from space and travel around the globe because there's so much burning. Often though, the secondary impact of the next big rain is what can doubly impact a community working to recover from the fire. And that's the debris flows, mudslides, and other water-related impacts from the fire. Right. We know about them, but I have found that a lot of the impacts are somewhat misunderstood. There's sort of two big classes. One is the type of landslides that happen because of fire. We call them debris flows if they're scientists, mudslide if you're in the public. Uh, the second thing is the level of contamination of our groundwater and particularly the creation of really high pH, which are caustic materials coming out of the ash. How does the soil change with the extreme heat of the fire? So the way the scientists put it is we have a deposition of hydrophobic chemicals created by the fire. Uh, an easier way to think of that is essentially, you know, or think of soot. It's sort of greasy. There's a film that forms that gets deposited on, on the ground and it keeps the soil from absorbing water as efficiently. It is now gonna be flowing over the top of the ground, which means it's creating a certain type of landslide, the one that's caused by picking up material on the surface. So what's the difference then between a deep-seated landslide and surface landslides? Because I think we see both. We do, but only the surface landslides connected to fire. So the difference is, you have the deep-seated landslides would be something where water seeps into the ground, the water pressure in the ground grows, and some failure surface deeper in the earth gets dislodged. And we sometimes see landslides. Think of Portuguese bend landslide off of uh, Palos Verdes, where you have a pretty big chunk of the hillside moving down along a slip surface. So that's something that requires water to get deep into the earth. And it happens in years when you have a lot of rain. And it often happens farther into the, into the year after the water absorbs. That's like when we see large houses or, or tracks of houses falling down hillsides. That's what these deep-seated landslides are. Is that correct? That's right. And the geologists go and can actually give you a risk of that. One of the things we do when we approve developments is get a geologist to tell us whether there's a history of deep-seated landslides that'll help take it out. By contrast, what happens in after fires is that the water actually can't get into the ground. So if anything, these deep-seated landslides would become less frequent. We don't see an increase of them with fires. Instead, with those hydrophobic chemicals, the water flows over the top. And as it, if, if it gets to rain heavily, and there's a lot of water flowing, 
it picks stuff up and it starts picking up sand and picking up little boulders and maybe more and more of this gets going and it starts being able to carry more. So it's a surface flow issue. That's why we use the, you know, landslide is deep, debris flow is the one over the surface. I think this is part of why you'll never hear a geologist call it a mudslide because the slide implies steeper. So where do these types of debris flows and landslides happen? Are they only in fire areas or is it specific types of fires? Okay, so the landslides are steep hills and lots of rain. Debris flows are places where the topography is pretty steep because this has to be about flowing water moving fast enough to pick stuff up. You can't have debris flows without fires. If there's just enough rain and it's steep enough and the water isn't getting absorbed, we do have them without fires. The big Glendora debris flow in 1969 that killed 35 people was actually not connected to a fire. But the fires make it worse. So especially right after the fire and the, the first big rain when the hydrophobic chemicals are still really all there. So you need steep hills, lots of fires, and heavy rain. In other words, Southern California is the perfect place for that. We have historically had really intense rainfalls. We have very steep mountains because we have all of our earthquakes. And, and obviously we then have fires. One thing we are seeing is as the wildfires are increasing in their area, becoming more common farther north because of climate change, we're also seeing an increased risk of debris flow type landslides moving up into the Pacific Northwest. With the increase of this phenomenon, as climate change comes into play, we're seeing a lot of examples of it in our modern life, but we've seen it for decades, as you just mentioned. How do modern cities deal with this deluge of rain and then debris flow following? Okay, so if you look at Southern California, which probably has one of the worst problems with this, we got hit by debris flows over and over again in the 19th century. Uh, flooding was a really big problem here. And because of it, we ended up creating a system of flood control to take care of this. To, to the scientists, there's a very famous fire and debris flow, the fire on Thanksgiving Day of 1933, and then 13 inches of rain in 36 hours on uh, New Year's Eve into New Year's Day of 1934. Where that fire had happened, a huge debris flow came down and actually swept through the Montrose City Hall near La Crescenta, where people had evacuated too. And so there was a, a high death toll of over 100 people. It also was the time when we were able to really clearly demonstrate and start researching that connection between the fires and the debris flows. More big storms in 1938 led to Southern California creating a system of, of channels to flush away the water but also what are called debris basins to catch the debris and try and keep it up there in the mountain before it swept on down the hill. During the development, 30s, 40s, 50s, all the communities up against the mountain front were required to put in these debris basins. One of the problems actually is that it's worked well enough that as new developments come in, people don't remember the problems quite so much and we haven't seen the debris basins or maybe debris basins are put in, but they really aren't big enough because people have forgotten how big the, the debris can be. And I think it's going to be difficult as the burn area expands 
putting in a debris basin takes land. <laughs> and you know, if that's private property, people that don't wanna do it. So it's gonna be a development challenge to continue to try and address this risk as our cities grow. Well, it's interesting, Lucy. I know that you lived right in the foothills of the uh, La Cunada community for many years. And after the station fire and the threat of debris flows, you moved in part because you were just a few houses down from the huge debris basin. What can you do if you live below a burn area besides moving? How long does this risk last? We often talk about five years. There's no question that the first year and even more the first big storm carries a lot of the risk because these chemicals do eventually dissolve or get washed away. And it's one of those risks that you have to sort of take in balance. It's like right now, you, do you go to the grocery store? What's the risk of catching COVID if you do that? You decide it's worthwhile as long as you wear your mask and take that extra precaution. And debris flows really can be some of the same thing. You need to check out where the debris basin is, where is it draining? Actually, that was sort of the surprise for me when the station fire came in. It didn't drain where I thought it did. But it's also then you balance. You know, we, uh, we had other reasons that helped us move. So like all risk, try and use critical thinking, rational balance of the risks, rather than trying to go completely from where the emotional place is. These are real risks that will affect more and more of us as wildfires become more intense and more frequent as the climate continues to warm. We have a lot that we know about debris flows and the subsequent impact on local communities that decision makers can take and utilize in their planning to protect life and property. But it's not a simple solution, as you ex explained. There's a lot of factors that go into it. It's not a simple risk, but there are some straightforward things you can do. Probably the most important is to recognize that the risk is when the rain is falling. Because it's water traveling over the surface, when it's not raining, your risk is gone. So you don't have to stay away for three days. You have to worry about the time when the rain is really intense. And you need to recognize that the water can pick up you know, boulders the size of cars and cars the size of boulders, and it can care and then carry those into your house. So don't underestimate the risk. If you've been evacuated, get out and stay out until the rain stops. Boulders the size of cars? I think this topic could be expanded and we could talk again about it. So we'll have to do this again. Until next time, I'm John Guerry with Dr. Lucy Jones and you, Getting Through It. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a sponsor at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones.